with Miss Carmen. Who else is with you, Miss Carmen? Just you? It's going to be a good time. Indeed it is. Well, good morning, everybody. Are you excited to be here today? Yes. I am very excited to be here. I know I say that every time I'm here, but something about today and the message and just sort of what the Lord has been showing me, I feel like um, today is going to be good. It's going to be challenging, but it's going to be good. So we have this fun little text. Uh, there's two episodes, really, that we have. We have, remember now that Jesus has been resurrected from the grave? If you remember that from last week, and they went and saw the empty tomb, and John went out of his way to show us how how much he could run quickly. Um, and so um, now we have these two interactions, separate occasions where Jesus interacts with Mary Magdalene, and then he's going to interact with his disciples, the, the gathered disciples, probably probably ten at this point, um, ten of the original twelve. We know that one of them is is no longer. That's Judas. And Thomas, we're going we're gonna to get into next week. And so he's going to interact with these two sets of people. And we're going to look at a couple of applications for us as we do that. But if you would, turn with me in your Bible. We're going to just start off by just going in, going for it. Because I've got some ground to cover and I want to, um, yeah, I just want to jump right in. So we're in John chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 11. And we're going to read down through verse 23. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went, announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this is our text for this morning. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and we'll get started. Father, we come to you, God, just humbled by your presence. Lord, your word tells us that where, where the, the gathering of people are, you're, you're with us. Your presence can be felt and known. And so we praise you for that in this place. We thank you for the word this morning that we've been reading. And as we look to just sort of walk through this text this morning, Father. I pray that you would illuminate, just shine a light in our hearts, Father, to show us through the Holy Spirit areas where we can apply this, where we can grow, where we can be challenged to do something practical, 
meaningful with this word today. I pray for a personal interaction for each one here with the word of God. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, questions? Text them to that number, please, if you would. Um, Sam and I will come up at the end and, and attempt to answer those for you. Sound good? Yep. All right. Let's get started. So Mary, that is Mary Magdalene. We find her again at the tomb, right? And this time she appears to be alone. Remember the first time she was with some of the other women, but now she seems to be alone. And what is she doing? She's crying. She's weeping. She's broken to pieces, if we're being really honest about what that means for her. As I mentioned last week, Mary was still in the dark with regard to what the resurrection meant. She, she didn't fully understand it. Even now, she's still trying to put the pieces together. But that's about to change. Things are about to look a little bit different for her. So she looks into the tomb, and what does she see? Two angels. Two angels, Two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been. Yes? yes? One at the foot, one at the head. So we have two angels positioned in the tomb where the body of Jesus was. Now, you know that as we've been exploring this Gospel of John, we have just been sort of inundated with references to the Old Testament and fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy, right? We're constantly going back into the Old Testament and a lot into Genesis. And today we're going to see a few more. The first one has to do with these angels that Mary sees and their positioning. So this is an allusion. Not an illusion, but an allusion with an A, which is a, a reference to something or it's insinuating something about what they're seeing. And it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. In that chapter, we have a description of the Ark of the Covenant. We have a description of its size, of its construction, its decoration, and all that stuff. And we're going to look at a verse, a couple of verses um, Exodus 25, verses 18 and 19 in specific. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. What's a cherubim? It's an angel. A two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. This is the Ark of the Covenant, Right? This is the agreement that God had with his chosen people, Israel. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Now, remember, when Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper, we, we repeat this almost every week from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Jesus is recording as saying, this is the blood of what kind of covenant? The new covenant. So in Jesus, we have a fulfillment of everything of the old covenant, and a new one is being established. So the, the presence of the angels here in this tomb is supportive of and declares that Jesus is the full manifestation of the Lord. But through this imagery, what we see is these angels specifically placed is representative of the new covenant, the ark of the new covenant. You could say that this empty tomb is somewhat of an ark of the new covenant, at least symbolizing that, with Jesus as the atoning sacrifice and Savior. I mean, that's powerful. You can just glance past this stuff sometimes, right? 
You see, oh, there's a couple of angels. That's cool. But it's very symbolic and very meaningful. But there's more. There's a couple of more things, but I'm just going to give you one because I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. I'll leave that for you to be able to do that. All right. So the angels ask Mary a question. What do they ask her? Why are you weeping? What's, what's wrong? And her answer is the same answer that she gave the last time. Uh, I don't know where they've taken him. They've taken him, but I don't know where they've laid him. And, and, and as soon as she said that, she turns around. She runs into something. It's Jesus. But does she recognize him initially? No. no, she doesn't know it's him. Who does she think it is? It's the gardener. That's an interesting person to kind of just be mistaken in this particular scene, right? Oh, excuse me. I didn't realize you were there. It's the gardener. This is another massive illusion. I mean, it's, it's huge, right? And I'm not going to go super deep into it. You can do that again on your own. But immediately your mind might take you to another garden that we've already been talking about in John, which is what? The Garden of Eden, right? We're talking about all these illusions and these things about the past. So in the Garden of Eden, shortly after God created man, placed him in the garden, he gave Adam a role. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. What do you call someone who works and keeps a garden? Now we've learned that Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the second Adam, right? He's the one that came to undo or redo all that the first Adam failed to do in the Garden of Eden. So Adam was raised up out of the dust of the earth. Now we have Jesus being raised up out of the dust of the grave. And Jesus has fulfilled in his person the demands of God on the cross and therefore has become the second Adam. Now, the gardener assigned by God is here in his new creation, the first day of the week, to tend his new creation, the church, us. So the imagery there is, is again, very powerful. First Adam was sent to tend and, and care for the, the new creation that had been given them. He failed in that. Now we have the second Adam, Jesus, as the true gardener, tending his new creation, which is the church. We're about to go into the church age. This is all leading up to us collectively being commissioned to go out. So this is a very, very significant moment in the history of our church. Now, these things for some may be like, I think you're kind of reaching. <laughs> gardener and angels and the Ark of the Covenant. But this is a big part of John's goal. Like He's trying to show us how all of this is being redone by Jesus. But he's doing that by casting our, our gaze back to where it happened initially and where it did not succeed. Here now, he's setting into order all that had been done in the garden, right as man had fallen into sin. It's actually pretty amazing when you begin to look at scripture in this light. You see how connected it is. It's fascinating, right? Maybe not so fascinating to you, I guess. To me, it is. So Jesus also asks Mary a question. And it's a familiar question. It's the same questions as the angels asked her, right? Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? This is not a coincidence, by the way, that now we've got a second asking of the question, why are you weeping? And then he calls Mary by name, and in that moment, she instantly knows it's Jesus. 
And she, she must fall around him because he, he says, don't cling to me. Like, there must be some physical, like, uh, it's you. And I would probably do the same thing, run and just fall on him, right, with my arms. But throughout this passage, Mary has been distraught. She's in deep mourning. She, she's just broken because of what happened to Jesus. And then the moment that she recognizes Jesus, in that instant, all the pain and sorrow disappear. Right? This is, this is what happens here. And it's replaced by joy. What's the biblical message and takeaway for us then? Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. He does that for us. And does this mean we're never going to face loss or tragedy or, or suffering or grief in this life? No, we're, we're still going to face those things because we do live in a broken world. But through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, even in the deepest, darkest seasons of grief and mourning, it will give way to joy and praise. Amen? Yeah. The last thing we see in this section of, of the passage is a change in the language that Jesus is using. Most importantly, a change in the relationship status that he is issuing. So this is the first time that this fatherhood language of God is applied to anybody other than himself. Now he's talking about the disciples as your father. It's almost as if in an instant there's an adoption that takes place. Your father. And then he says something else your brothers and sisters. So there's this language about family that instantly changes everything. That is what the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes for you and for me, a reconciliation to the Father, that we can call him Father, and that makes us brothers and sisters. That's, again, one of those things that you can just glance over. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. It's like, okay, cool. No, no, no. He'd never said that up at that point. We are adopted. That's what the cross and the resurrection accomplished, right? Yeah. So then Mary goes off. She's all excited, right? And what does she do? She goes and tells the disciples. Now, this is still the same day of the resurrection. This is still that first Easter Sunday morning, if you want to call it that. And in that evening, the disciples are gathered together, as we see in verse 19. There they are. They're all gathered together. And what is their general demeanor? How are they feeling? More than bummed out. I mean, bummed out, yes. But what else? They are freaking out. They are scared for their lives, thinking, perhaps, that the Jews would come for them next. Like, they did that to Jesus. We were his followers. Are they coming for us next? They're literally in hiding. But remember, they had already seen, at least John and Peter had seen the empty tomb. Like, so, so something should kind of begin to rattle around that brain of theirs and go, wait, didn't Jesus talk about this? But, but again, not quite to its fulfillment yet. They're still putting the pieces together. They haven't seen enough, experienced enough to not operate in fear. They're, they're worried, so they're tucked away, terrified, hiding, and then suddenly Jesus is standing in their midst. If you notice in the narrative, it talks about the doors being locked. Like they're in this place, the doors are locked, and all of a sudden, boom. Jesus is standing right there. That's enough to kind of freak you out, maybe, a little bit. I mean, 
Not them, it doesn't seem like anyway. You don't get any of that from John. But what is his initial greeting to them? Peace be with you. And what does he do after that? He shows them his hands and his side, which is evidence of what? It's evidence of the crucifixion, the cross, right? And, and, and once they do that, John tells us that they're, they're glad to see him. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad that they're, they're glad to see him. They're maybe not as excited as Mary was. But before we go any further, I want to tell you where we're going with this, because it may, it may not stand out right away. You may be like, wait, what? How did you get there? So in these very few short verses, there's the second half, this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. What we have is John's record of the Great Commission. It's very short. It's the briefest of the five iterations, if you will, of the Great Commission. And it's actually the earliest in this time frame from resurrection to ascension. How many days is that? From Jesus' resurrection out of the grave to where he goes up into heaven. It's 40 days. 40 days Jesus was on this earth, resurrected in his bodily form. Again, continuing to preach and teach mainly about his great commission. So John records it right here. Like the, some of the very first words that he utters to his disciples is the great commission. If you read Matthew's account, Matthew 28, it's some of the last words words that Jesus utters to his disciples before he's taken up. So this is a running theme throughout all of the 40 days of Jesus's post-resurrection interactions with his disciples. So what I want to do is I want to highlight four things, four, what we'll call four essentials for Christian evangelism from these verses. Sound good? You're like, no, I don't want to talk about evangelism. That doesn't sound like fun at all. Well, if that doesn't sound fun, then just wait. <laughs> so, disciples, freaking out, scared, in hiding. Jesus, in that moment, gives them a command to go out and proclaim this message. Right? I mean, come on. Can't you just comfort them a little bit? Hug on them, let them know everything's going to be all right? No, it's like, peace be with you. Oh, by the way, just as the Father sent me, now, now it's your turn to go. So, so get ready to go. Who knows what their response was? I don't know. We'll see. First, what do we gain from this? Let me just read it again so I'm not um, getting too far ahead of, of you guys here. This is, um, let's see, verse 21. Jesus said to, them again, said to them again, peace be with you. So this is the second time he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he said this, he breathed on them, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So it's these verses that we're going to pull four things from. And the first thing we're pulling out is an assurance of personal, of a personal experience of peace, I'm talking about peace here, in both our conscience and in our mind. I'm going to unpack that a little bit because you might be thinking like, what? Think peace, peace in general. That's the whole goal here. His initial words to the disciple, disciples are peace. Twice he says that. What Jesus is about to say to them comes on the heels of two very significant events that we've been studying. 
his crucifixion and his resurrection. So the peace that we're talking about here has to do with the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the idea of peace in the conscience and peace in the mind. Assurance of the mind and of the conscience. Let me unpack this for you a little bit because you're probably going, what does that mean? So what is it that separates us from God? Without Jesus in the equation, it's sin, right? So our greatest need then is to be reconciled back to God through the forgiveness of sins, right? We cannot proclaim that forgiveness if we ourselves have not, with confidence, received that forgiveness. Would you agree with that? Yeah, how are we going to go preach something that we ourselves haven't received or confident that we have received? So Jesus speaks peace to them, then shows them immediately the means by which that peace can be experienced. Evidence of the cross. Because of what I did for you on the cross, you can experience peace knowing that you have been reconciled. That my death on the cross did, in fact, achieve reconciliation and the forgiveness of your sins. So peace be with you and your conscience is clear that you are redeemed. Does that make sense? He says, peace be with you. Let me show you my hands. <laughs> right? So that's the first aspect of this. But then we've got the resurrection. This brings the peace that, that they required for the mission that he was about to give them. He was going to send them out on the mission. In order to go and proclaim, we need the assurance, at least I need the assurance, <laughs> of Christ's peace. Peace of the conscience through his death that banishes sin. And peace of mind through his resurrection which banishes doubt. He said he was going to do this, and he did it. And the resurrection is evidence of that. So that brings me a peace of mind knowing that who he said he was, what I'm staking my life on, is true. And because of that, I can have peace of mind and because of my forgiveness, I can have peace in the conscience knowing who I am in Christ. Does that make sense? That's the kind of peace that he's offering here. And it's necessary because that's the peace the world needs. So we have to have that as well. So we first need that assurance of peace of conscience and peace of mind. Second, we need a humble identification with the people to whom we are being sent. A humble identification with the people in whom we are being sent to engage. So Jesus was very personal in his mission, wasn't he? Yes. He, he was all about people. He was going in and out of places constantly, whether it was the temple, the marketplace, in people's homes. He was everywhere engaging the lost and especially the people whose society just kind of pushed off to the side. Right? He was going after them. But what Jesus says in verse 21 is very important for us to take into consideration. He said in verse 21, just as the Father has sent me, even so I'm what? I'm sending you. In other words, our evangelistic effort should look like Jesus's evangelistic effort. We should strive to mirror what Jesus did. He was able to identify with people because he was engaging them. Right? He was in proximity to them. He was around 
broken and lost people. He was available to them. He knew what they were struggling with. He knew what they needed. Let me read a quote to you from a minister. Now, this is 50 years ago that this gentleman is talking about this, having to do with this very idea of being humbly identifying with our targeted audience, if you will. He says, I believe that our failure to obey the implications of this command, the Great Commission, is the greatest weakness of evangelical Christians in the field of evangelism today. We do not identify. We believe so strongly and rightly in proclamation, that is, sharing the gospel, that we tend to proclaim our message from a distance. We sometimes appear like people who shout advice to drowning men from the safety of the seashore. We do not dive in to rescue them. We are afraid of getting wet and indeed of greater perils than this. But Jesus did not broadcast salvation from the sky. He visited us in great humility. Right? So a humble identification with the people through our interaction, through our welcoming them into our homes and into our lives, that is a necessary aspect of living out the Great Commission for you and for me. It is the second essential thing that we need for Christian evangelism. Thirdly, is the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. So if we take only the idea from verse 22 before digging any further into that, we see that the Holy Spirit was given and therefore is necessary for the work of evangelism. Like God the Father, through Jesus, doesn't just give us the Holy Spirit so that we can have a good time with the Holy Spirit and just like sit back and chill. He gives us the Holy Spirit for a purpose. And, listen here, Apart from the Spirit's work in our life, we will fail in evangelism because it is us trying to manufacture something. And I don't know about you, but I'm not the Holy Spirit. I try sometimes to be the Holy Spirit, but I fail. (laughs) And if I'm going to be effective, if you're going to be effective in this great commission to be out among the lost, sharing the good news of the gospel, we must Not only have the Holy Spirit, but rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Now, for for a lot of us, let's be honest, just the idea of the Holy Spirit is somewhat a mystery to us. It's sort of kind of like this nebulous, like, what does the Holy Spirit actually do? And we talk about it, like power and some other things, but Scripture is actually pretty clear in telling us what the Holy Spirit does for us. So I'm just going to walk through a few of those things so we can gain a little bit more confidence in what it is that we have in us. We studied earlier in John 14, 26, and tells us that, that the Holy Spirit is our helper and our teacher. The Holy Spirit helps us, teaches us. Cool. 1 Corinthians tells us he is our source of revelation, wisdom, and power. The Holy Spirit gives you wisdom gives you revelation, gives you power. Romans 8 tells us he helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us. How many of those things do you think will be useful in evangelism? All of them, right? Not only useful, but necessary. And this is what we have. 
When we receive Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit, we have all of these things. And perhaps the most critical role the Holy Spirit plays, especially in terms of evangelism, we've already read about it in John 16. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit in the Father's great commission through Jesus is convicting a lost world of sin. He's the only one that brings new life. You don't do it, I don't do it. The Holy Spirit convicts and, and brings to light their need for that. He uses us as the method of delivery. But we're not the ones that do the work. That should be like a weight off your shoulders. Right? Your job is very clear. Go and proclaim. That's it. The rest is up to him. So you, you can't feel defeated or like you messed up or like you didn't do something right because that person didn't profess faith. Right? Hopefully you don't. All right. Because I know some of you got hung up on verse 22 and you're like, wait, what was that about breathing the Holy Spirit? Did anybody else catch that? Or do I, can I just move on? Do I need to go back to 22? I know Mike wants me to go back to 22. I should go back. Okay, I'm going to give you a very, very brief explanation of what I think is happening. And I say think because this is a very difficult just couple of words here. Like, what is actually happening here? And I say brief also because this is not the point of the passage at all. But we will be diligent. Okay. Here's what I've got. I don't think this is a replacement of Pentecost. Right? Acts is coming up. In chapter 2, we're going to see the Holy Spirit come like rushing water and, you know, tongues of fire. And it's going to be like this huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit, tongues and all that. I don't think this is a replacement of that. Some people do. They think, oh, this is like a... Precursor, like the disciples got some extra cool thing. I don't see it like that. I see this as the inauguration, if you will, of that new creation that I talked about earlier with the gardener, with, with Christ being the, the true gardener who tends his new creation, the new creation being the church, me and you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Anytime we see a new thing being created or reached in the New Testament, Especially in Acts, we see an outpouring of the Spirit. When we see it in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit be given to the church of Jerusalem, then we see when it goes out to Samaria, there's another outpouring of the Spirit. When we see it going to the ends of the earth, we see another outpouring. So I think this is a pattern that's being established. There's a pouring out of the Spirit for a certain new creation here. But I think this is in line with Jesus restoring all things to their intended function. Right. Support for this comes from, once again, Genesis. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord, oh, it, oh, there he is. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the exact same term that John uses here. The breathing of life into this new creation. It brought newness of life. And it brought the function that God intended, life, for this particular individual, Adam. For the church, 
It brings newness of life and proper function to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. That's what I think is happening here. Now, did they actually receive something when, when, when Christ breathed on them? I'm certain. I don't know what exactly it was. And, and the scriptures don't tell us. So where scripture is silent, we need to be careful not to impose our thoughts or beliefs onto something. right? But again, it seems to double as a picture that God was starting something new. And that this moment was set apart from everything else that was going on up until that moment. By this act of Jesus, by him breathing out. I think it does point to Pentecost. Like, hey, something else is coming. And they might look back on this moment and, and see, okay, I see what you started there. But that's that's about all the time I got to spend on that. Because we could just dive into that and go way off the deep end. Realizing that this has very little to do with the actual message. <laughs> The point of this right here is that we receive the Holy Spirit when we repent and believe in the, in, in the Lord as Savior. And that power resides in us and that power is, and all the giftings of the Holy Spirit are necessary for evangelism. That's the third thing. Good to go? Amen. Wonderful. Fourth and lastly, it's the message. What is the message? This is the authoritative proclamation of the terms. The divine terms of peace. How do we get this peace that we talked about earlier? What are Jesus' terms, if you will? It's the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you've read that, let me read it again. This is 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Some religions take this to mean that human beings are necessary agents for forgiveness. Meaning there has to be like an intermediary where, where I have to go to you and confess my sins because it says if you forgive, then they're forgiven. That's not what this says at all. There is nobody else in the equation. We don't need to go to confess somebody in order to be forgiven, except to who? To the Father through Christ, right? That, that's it. There, there's no other human being, human agency that's necessary. So we can and should go directly to God for this forgiveness. That's what Jesus also accomplished when the veil was torn, that access to God was gained, right? So it's not that, it's something else. It's the terms in which a person can come to faith in Jesus. That's, that's essentially what it is. And be reconciled back to the Father. For their sins to be forgiven through the repentance of their sins and a belief in the gospel, in the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. The wording here, the way that it's written here, the reason John does this is it's a means of expressing the authority that they have been given. The authority to carry that message to the people. And us as well. We have been given an authoritative proclamation. Not because of what we are or what we've done, but because of what he's accomplished for us. We have now the authority as his representatives to communicate, you need to be forgiven. 
And here's how that happens. So the message is what we're talking about here. The proclamation of that life-giving truth. Now this is where practical, good, biblical interpretation comes from. This is not really a point in the text, but I want to pull something out of this for you. You can see how somebody could read just that text and say, oh, there's somebody that's necessary for me to go confess my sins. i got to go to some apostle-like person to be forgiven. That's why we never take a verse out of context or in isolation, because we can make it say whatever we want. Right? People do it all the time. So the, the biblical practice here is that the Bible or Scripture interprets Scripture. We can go a lot of other places in the New Testament that explain in greater detail this process of being forgiven, can't we? And it doesn't involve human beings. <laughs> it involves a repentance and a belief and the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, that was a lot. I get it. There's just between the first part and the second part. But here's, here's the main point. God gives us all that we need, everything he, he equips us to be able to go out and proclaim and to live out and walk out this great commission that he's giving us. Jesus has, has called us into this lifestyle, and it is a lifestyle. Everything about our lives should be changed because of this. To send out and proclaim this message of hope that somebody proclaimed to you. The reason you're sitting here is because somebody proclaimed that truth to you. So we have, then, the assured peace of conscience and mind through the resurrection and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we know where our peace comes from. We can express that to others. We need a humble identification with the people that we are trying to engage. We need to be out among them. We need to have our hearts bending towards them, broken for them. If you ever prayed that prayer, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Give me your eyes to see these people. There's songs written about that, right? That's the, the humble identification. Like, I know where you are and what you're going through in your life, and I have the answer to all of your sufferings. We have a humble identification with the lost we have the power of the Holy Spirit to equip us, teach us, encourage us, lead us, intercede for us. All the things that we need where we feel like we can't do it in our own strength. And then we have the message. We have the message of reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins to go and proclaim. So now the question remains, what are we going to do about it? Because I don't think I... I told you anything you didn't know, minus the maybe the, the Old Testament allusions and Mary in the tomb. But from moving forward from that point, these four essentials, did anybody learn anything new? I don't think so. <laughs> right? Maybe aspects or nuances maybe shaped a little bit of what you, what you were taught. But there's nothing new here. So the question still remains, what are we going to do about it? I'm going to pray here. And then the worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing a song. But before we do, as we're praying, I'm going to... I'm just going to pray. Let's just do that. Gracious and mighty God, we come to you. 
Lord, we just thank you for how clear you instruct us, how, how accessible you make the truth of the gospel. And to our eyes, Lord, it's evident. To our minds and to our hearts, it's evident. You tell us, go and proclaim. Just as God has sent Jesus, so now he's sending us. So Lord, I pray right now that you would remind us of the peace that we have because of you and through you. The world is a dark and hopeless place. And we have a solution to that. Who are we to withhold that from a world who's dying and broken? Remind us of the peace that we have through your death and resurrection. And God, give us a heart for the people who are wandering this earth broken, lonely, separated from you on a path of destruction. God, give us a heart for them. And Lord, let us acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit within us that gives us the courage, the wisdom, the strength to do the hard things that we don't often want to do or like to do even. And Lord, let us recite and rehearse the truth of the gospel, the message that we have to proclaim. It's not a complex message. It's, it's simple. But there's a reason, Lord, while that minister 50 years ago said that there's a huge problem with why we as the church don't do this. And Lord, I would argue that 50 years later, we've gotten further away from living this out. So Lord, I ask, would you help us to do something about it? Would you move in this place in a way that compels us to action? Pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so prayerfully putting this into action, here's what I got for you. After church, after we break everything down, I'm going to go over to that park right there, and I'm going to go pray for some people, for some strangers. And I invite you to go with me. We're not doing big, huge gospel conversations. We're simply praying for people because this takes steps. And one of those first steps is just interacting with people. Now, if that scares you and your heart's beating right now, that's, that's a good thing. If you're like, yeah, let's go, then you better be there. <laughs> we're going to pair up, and we're just going to walk up to people and say, hey, you know what? This is our community. We love our community. Is there any way that I can pray for you? Can we pray for you? And you'd be surprised how probably nine out of ten people will say, yeah, okay. And they'll give you something to pray for. And then you pray for it and you say, have a great day. That's that's. Step one, phase one, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to go do it right after church. Because one of the things that we lack in the church 
is opportunity and accountability. We could preach a great message all day long and you'd be like, woohoo! And then tomorrow, nothing. Right? We do it week in and week out. We've done it as a church for a hundred years. So I'm going to do it at the church. And I'm going to do it again on Tuesday at that park at 4 o'clock. And you're welcome to join me. I'm going to continue to do it every week because that's what he's called us to do. And we're going to grow on that. We're going to build on that for those that aren't going to come along with it. And, and hear me now. This is last minute. Like I just told Mike about that this morning. He's like, well, I wish you had told me earlier because I already made plans. I was like, that, that's fine. You got plans. I get it. But some of you don't have plans. And some of you have no excuse but to go over there. And this is not a, a pressure thing or like you better be there kind of thing. If you feel the Lord calling you to go spend literally 20 minutes walking through a park, praying for a couple people, then just meet me over there. Meet right at the beginning of the rec center. I'll give you a time hack when we're done breaking everything down. And I'm going to be over the same place at 4 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. Do with that what you will. Let's sing together. Thank mm-hmm. you.